I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast. I am your host, Trevor Cummings, and also your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I am here with my two good friends and peers, Mr. Sean Latimer and Dea Pranas. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. And today we are going to be talking about, and Dea loves the photo for this article, uh, but we're going to be talking about the article that I titled, The Aroma of Euphoria. And actually, that is a scent or fragrance by Calvin Klein, if you were curious, but that is absolutely (laughs) not what this article is about. Did you find that on Google? I did. (laughs) I Googled it because I was like, oh, I just want to make sure that this title... It lines up? Yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't, uh, Google search for something else. Now you're going to get a bunch of ads for cologne and stuff. (laughs) For Calvin Klein. Yeah, maybe. I need it, right? Um, And I opened up the article talking about one of my frustrations with English grammar, and uh, that is exclamation marks. They are frustrating to me because you don't find out till the end of the sentence that you should have been emphatic or excited at the beginning of the sentence. That's so true. And then you find yourself rereading it in a totally different tone. Yeah, I actually remember the reason I I think of this is when I was in middle school, I remember somebody that was kind of struggling with reading and he was reading out loud and he just emphasize the last word in the sentence because he saw the exclamation mark. And it's kind of, I mean, I feel bad laughing, but he was just like, and then there was a really loud lightning. (laughs) Um, And I was like, man. It's true. How would you know? How would you know? But then I took six years of Spanish and you asked before this podcast started, do I know Spanish? I absolutely don't. But I passed all the tests. I think I got a lot of A's, but I can't speak it, read it, any of that. But what I do remember is the uh, forefathers of Spanish grammar got it right because they put the exclamation mark before the sentence. That makes sense. So it's a, it's a warning. It's this excitement sandwich that you know you have to rev up and get ready for what you're about to say. Now, why is that relevant to what we're going to be talking about today? Is I, I, I'm saying that stock market bubbles are a lot like exclamation marks. You don't know when they're happening. It's a lot like the English exclamation mark. But the emphasis happens all absolutely at the end when the bubble bursts. But you wish it was like Spanish, where you knew beforehand, because what happens in the way bubbles work, and people don't understand this, and this is kind of where I want to start our conversation, is that things that are expensive can inevitably get more expensive. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? There's money to be made there. Yeah, I think it's a big difference, too, of just investment philosophy, because you find um, when people talk about the dot-com bubble, what they don't realize is there are a lot of different types of investors. There were people that were day trading, which they're okay with that momentum just going up for the day or the week. And then there's other people that are planning for 30-year retirement goals, and maybe they don't understand what they're purchasing. So your objectives matter, it sounds like. 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and this whole idea of a, of a bubble, it's it's difficult to see when you're in it, and bubbles are really only defined in hindsight. And uh, maybe some parts of the market are bubbly and some parts are not. And and there's a further step, too, where maybe it is a bubble, and if it pops, it doesn't really metastasize into the overall real economy, and it doesn't really have pernicious effects that way. So the, the, I, I think the, the takeaway is uh, understanding when your decision-making is getting swept up because prices just keep getting higher, and not as a result of some overall investment philosophy or uh, critical thought about cer- certain fundamentals. I like that you bring that up because I remember when you experience a bubble is people right after it, they start to look for insurance and ways to avoid that bubble in the future. And I remember post 2008, 
a lot of people started talking about the subprime auto issue and how this was a huge issue in markets. But just like you said, what they didn't realize is all these subprime auto loans weren't going to be able to destroy the economy like the subprime housing market did. Right, absolutely, and that and that's really what what uh, you know involves a lot of um, homework. And at the end of the day, even the experts don't get it right. Really, what uh, what makes a bubble pernicious is the leverage that is linked to that bubble within the system. And what happened in two thousand eight is, and if you were if you're purely, and this is also why it helps to have a a, a broad view of markets, because if you're purely, purely an equity investor. You missed what was happening in other asset classes, you know, namely, namely mortgages, and the leverage that was linked to a lot of these mortgages because people believed uh, essentially they were risk free when they weren't. So, it, it's a leverage that's linked to the bubble, and it's not always clear given how uh, interconnected everything is, and exposures may be hard to define. And for the listeners, those of you who don't know, uh, Trevor and I are both advisors here at the Ponser Group. Day is actually in charge of our solutions and analytics department, so he handles. A lot of our trading, our analysts, the research. So um, he's able to speak to these a lot better than Trevor and I can. Yeah, and that's why it's a great opportunity to invite you in. And even when you're talking, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit, if you're familiar with it, kind of about long-term capital management and what that did to and how pernicious that was and the effect that it had kind of on the economy when that happened. Sure, sure. Uh, so LTCM uh, 97, I, I believe. I'm not, I'm not sure the, uh, the, the date. Sean and I won't correct you. Okay. We will not. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> uh, but, but the whole idea was you had a lot of these PhD and uh, a lot of these really smart guys in the room, and they were coming up with all these models and trying to use historical data to make certain accurate predictions about the um, really the bond market. And essentially what happened uh, is something that they didn't foresee, uh, which was, uh, you know, Russia, Russia's devaluation of their currency. And um, the trade that they were putting on essentially went against them. But given all their, their statistical modeling, it was something that could only happen in once in every hundred years. And they got, you know, something a little wrong and, and they ended up, uh, ended up going bust. But it wasn't just that that caused such a crisis it was a uh, ltcm was a hedge fund and it was a large hedge fund at the time and um the the issue was things were so interconnected that this one hedge fund going down could cause some sort of st- systemic risk to the system and uh essentially the government had to come step in and and ensure that nothing was going to go wrong and uh, protect the system essentially from going on, going under. So, so what's 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 uh, difficult in our system is the level of globalization, the, the level of interconnectedness. Yes, uh, it has its benefits, but sometimes it can add to systemic risk, which you have to factor in. Uh, you know, when it does come to certain bubbles and and certain areas of the market that might be uh, that might have a little bit of risk to them. And is that where we get that adage, too big to fail? That's why the government has to step in, because of the collateral damage and ripple effect of those events? Yes, absolutely. And, and I, too big to fail, uh, I, I, I know that phrase was thrown around a lot after 2008, but that, that phrase has been around for quite some time. It did come up with LTCM. It came up before that, I, I think maybe 15 years before that. Uh, I forget which bank that first went under. But yeah, that's the whole idea. Is Maybe the savings and loan crisis? Or- uh, I believe so, somewhere in there. Uh, but that's the whole idea. Are these institutions uh, too big to fail? And if they do fail, 
uh, what happens. And, and I, I believe in Bernanke's memoirs, he had wrote that it wasn't that Bear Stearns was too big to fail, it was, it, it was too interconnected to fail. And that's really it, is that it's it's not that they're just too big, it's that the, everybody shares exposures, uh, one person's loan is another person's asset. The incestualness of it all. Right, exactly. So it, all, all that is to say is that certain things can have systemic effects and certain things can't, and it's really hard to disentangle everything and know which is which. Yeah, that makes sense. Before we started the podcast, uh, Sean and I were kind of laughing back and forth. I know you're you're more involved in social media than I am, and you were kind of telling me some funny things that you've been seeing on social media that make you feel like things are a little bit bubblicious. Maybe you could share that with us. Yeah, definitely. Um, as mentioned in the article, there's um, people on social media that they post videos talking about how easy it is to make money in the stock market to the point that they're taking their life savings and they buy stocks that go up. And then they sell them when they're done going up. And now they don't have to work anymore. And they make all their money. And it's so easy. And I remember laughing reading in the comments because people are like, wow, thank you so much. You're so right. This is great. And then people would say, oh, I just don't have enough money, though, to get the same returns to cover all my expenses. And they go, oh, it's easy. Just use options. And they're like, oh, that's great. How do I do that? And it just there's there's a lot of uh, finance professionals on social media that try not to poke fun at it because it's dangerous. But you can't help but laugh and just say, yeah, it's easy, right? Like, what could go wrong? And so when I read the article this morning, I told Trevor right away, I go, wow, this is such perfect timing because I was just reading about this last week and, and I it leaves me speechless. Yeah, writing the article, I literally had to transcribe what one of the videos was saying. It was uh, a husband and wife. Uh, the gentleman was in a Ohio Buckeyes uh, sweatshirt, which... Are you a Buckeyes fan? No, I know your family. Hey, yeah, yeah. Don't hate on Ohio State. I'm not I'm hating on Ohio State. I have a lot of family, a lot of Buckeyes in the family. So. Fair enough. He was just wearing a Buckeyes sweatshirt. And this was the quote. I had to transcribe it. I was watching the video. He says, I know trading sounds intimidating, but here's my strategy in a nutshell. I see a stock going up and I buy it. I just watch it. And he's kind of pointing with his finger. I watch it and I see. And then when it stops, I sell it. And I just do that over and over and over again. And it pays for our lifestyle. <laughs> And then his wife kind of interrupts him and she says, yeah, and you know, the greatest thing about it is really not the money. It's just the fact that we don't have to have a nine to five jobs. And I watch that and I just cringe. And my cringe is like two parts. Uh, I feel bad for them because I don't think investing is easy peasy. And I think if it was like that, then somebody could make a career out of it and they could be very, very wealthy. But I think in moments and times, if you jump on that momentum, you can have favorable results. But a lot of investing is endurance and doing it for a long time, not being successful for a week or two. Absolutely. And I, and I like what you said about the you have a generation of investors that doesn't have that scar tissue and doesn't have that historical perspective and everything's hunky-dory. And, and it's not, it, it can feel easy. Like you said, there are moments in time where you just buy something and it'll go up and then you do it again, rinse or repeat, and all of a sudden your 10 trades in a row worked out. But then the time it doesn't, maybe you lose a lot more money than the amount of money you've gained on those previous 10 trades. So it really comes down to understanding the potential range of outcomes and risks and approaching uh, your investment strategy from the risk side of things first. And you uh, and I think you need the proper historical uh, knowledge to be able to do that. And maybe this is relevant. I know you're a poker player. Do you play Hold'em? I do, yes. So here's a question, and I'm really curious about this because I've thought about it a lot. I think we've talked about it on a past podcast. 
Tell me more about why some of the great Hold'em players can make it to that final table in the World Series of Poker. Because that, for me, means that it absolutely is skill and it's not luck. And how is that relevant to kind of what we're talking about today? Sure. I think there's a lot of corollaries. Uh, I, the, the main one being that, uh, you know, aside from, you know, psychology, the main one being is making decisions in the face of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, poker is, uh, is I, I think, a little bit easier than the market is because the range of outcomes are defined where the, the market's a little trickier. Like every hand, you can have a statistical relevance right. of knowing what that possible outcome could right. be. Right, exactly. And it's really the difference between risk and uncertainty is risk you understand the outcomes and you understand the probabilities associated with the outcomes where uncertainty, you kind of have to make sort of best guesses, but the, the thought process or, or the, you know, the mental exercise is similar in the sense that you have a certain, uh, uh, you have s- a certain range of outcomes in poker and you have to decide, okay, I don't know what the future is going to be exactly, but here is the best strategy given these potential range of outcomes and the probabilities associated with the ranges. So uh, I think that mental exercise is the same, and uh, the application of that uh, definitely is uh, is an investment tool you can use. Got it. And Sean, you're an advisor, and I've got to think that this momentum that's happening out there or people seeing their neighbors be very successful or people that are on TikTok watching these videos, it does offer some allure. So how do you counsel your clients on that? Do you encourage them to side pocket a small amount of money to do that on their own? Do you tell them it's silly and you shouldn't do it? Like, how do you solve for that when people want to basically scratch that itch of day trading or or whatever it might be? Yeah, good question. And I I think it ties into the article because people who have had those, you know, battle scars from corrections in the past or financial crisis or whatever it may be, they do remember that feeling and they they don't experience that again. So they typically look at their portfolio and segments of their serious long-term savings, retirement savings, things that are going to fund retirement for them years down the line. And then they may have a bucket or a portion of money that they side pocket that is money they would go to a poker tournament with or money that they would go on a vacation or money that they feel comfortable with taking a little bit more risk. And yes, if someone's been doing it themselves for years and now they're finally having a financial plan put together and having someone manage the investments on their behalf, uh, it sometimes is difficult for them to give up uh, all control. So it is a good idea for them to take a small percentage to trade on their own because it does scratch that itch. If they hit that home run, they get to tell all their friends when they're going fishing or playing poker. And if they lose it, it doesn't ruin them or move the needle enough to, to be a big pain point. So that's typically what does happen, and uh, I I think it's a good solution. I I don't think the idea of them having no control or not doing it themselves and then building resentment or that fear, not fear of missing out, but that frustration of missing out, and then them making more drastic drastic decisions in the future, I think hurts them more. Yeah, so it doesn't always have to be binary, right? You talk about this idea of maybe opening a hobby account. And relative to what you were talking about, Dea, kind of poker, it's kind of like the person that says, I'm going to take X amount to Las Vegas, Mm. and I'm not going to go to the ATM machine, even though that would be uh, a hard desire to break if uh, if you were on a hot streak or... I guess you wouldn't be on a hot streak if you you were not. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like what Dea is talking about. It's like defining the risk up front. If you know you're going to put X amount of dollars in this hobby account, and this won't make or break you, and it was just a reallocation of vacation money money or gambling money, then I I suppose that that could make sense. What I think is difficult about all of this, as much as we want to poke fun at that video of this guy talking about, hey, the stock goes up, and then when it goes down, I sell it, that is 
a strategy, right? That is whether it's trend following or momentum, looking at the price action of a stock. There are a lot of academics and there's a lot of research that supports that style of investing. What I think that's difficult for me on why I haven't adopted that is even though it can work when things are going well, the drawdowns, the downside are much deeper because that velocity tends to go both ways. Maybe, Day, you could tell us a li- our listeners more about what momentum is and kind of the academic side of it. Sure. Uh, the momentum strategy is uh, there is a lot of research to support that it does work. The, re- the research is based on a quantitative strategy. Uh, it's not based on somebody using their own discretion about, it. you know, if something's gone up in the next 30 minutes, let me buy it. Or if it's gone up in the week, let me buy it. The research is rules usually, based. right, it's very, very rules-based, very disciplined. And uh, let's, say, let's say the rule will be something like this. Let's take the starting price of uh, Apple or, you know, whatever security you want on a, on a Monday. And if the price is higher the next Monday, then you buy that security. And then you you hold it for uh, for a week or two, and then you sell it. And that process, that that whole uh, rules based strategy of just buying something because the price went higher, uh, does tend to work marginally over uh, long periods of time if you use a quantitative strategy. That being said, if you are if you are somebody who's trying to day trade that strategy, it can typically. Uh, if done at the wrong time, you can end up losing a lot of money. It, it can be, uh, you know, what we call the make a little, make a little, lose a lot trade, <laughs> which uh, which generally you, you want to stay away from. So I, I, I caution uh, There's a, there's people, a name, people name for that, it. collecting pennies in front of the train or something yeah, like yeah, that, or in front of a steamroller. Yeah. I, I don't know what they say. <laughs> um, well, maybe I want to ask both of you guys, and we'll kind of close out this podcast, but just on a personal level, um, you guys are both humans, I believe. Um, so I think when a lot of things are going up around you and people that you might not think highly of are getting wealthy, uh, I- I'm guessing there's some sort of interest or jealousy that enters you. What does that drive you to do, Sean? Does it drive you to basically want to participate or does it drive you to root against those people from uh, winning further? Oh, good question. No, I, I would never root against people because I'm happy for them when they make that trade and and it was a home run, and they made a lot of money. And I, I, but I definitely don't change the way that I look at my own savings and investments because I do believe, and I think we learned this together a long time ago, that the things that are in your control, being your savings rate and just being exposed to the market for the long term, and that compounding growth makes a much bigger difference, or will move the needle of my balance sheet much more than if me trying to participate in the next big home run. How about you, sir? I, absolutely. I think that was extremely well said. I don't have much to add. Uh, Is there a title of your investment account that we should talk about? <laughs> I, I, I sometimes nickname my account, my investment accounts, uh, uh, you know, my mad money accounts, uh, <laughs> uh, different names, but we won't get into that. As far as... Uh, you wouldn't name it Get Rich, Die Trying, right? No, no, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> uh, but as far as, you know, other people getting rich around you or the kind of what that... What that does to you, how that affects your decision making, I completely agree with Sean. I, you know, it's easy for me to be happy for others, and people are getting richer than others all across the globe. I, I don't understand. It seems irrational to me that just because your your neighbor is getting uh, rich, that needs to cause a certain amount of anxiety. So I, I think at the end of the day, if you have a philosophy, then it shelters you from a lot of that stuff, an investment philosophy specifically or if you trust somebody that has that philosophy uh, that does that for you so I, I think you as, as long as you have a, a reasonable way of looking at the world I think you're pretty insulated from those feelings 
Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I'm sheltered uh, because I have an advisor. I resource the Bonson Group to manage my investment accounts, so I stay disconnected. But I can tell you one of the things that I probably shouldn't do that I, I do almost all the time is anytime I see a stock going up a ton, I'll look at what it's done the last 12 months, and then I'll put in the calculator, what if I put 10000 or what if I put 100000 And then for probably like 30 seconds, I kind of daydream of like, man, what would I have done with that? Uh, because this idea that you could get a 100-bagger or this idea of a stock going up a ton and you being on the ownership side of that, it is fun to fantasize about. I, I will say, for me, it doesn't get to execution, but I grab my calculator all the time to think, okay, what if I would have put X amount or this or that? Um, so yeah. it's one of my uh, guilty little pleasures. Sure, and every you know, and everybody's guilty of it to an extent. I I can imagine if you were a a, a CEO of any a, any startup company right now, uh, or if you were a CEO of an electric car company, or or if a CEO of a cloud based company, you see Snowflake IPOing at you know a hundred two hundred times revenue. I'm sure you're going to be doing some napkin math <laughs> to see how much your equity is worth. So what, ba- what your balance sheet looks like, right? And where you're going to buy your property yeah, in Hawaii? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I'll wrap us up with kind of where I ended the article or kind of in the last section is I, I did say two things. I think it's really important to understand these things is if you ask me this question is, do I believe right now currently that there are bubbles in our market? I do. I absolutely do. But in the same breath, do I believe that some things are trading at bargain prices and there is good investments, good entry points to be had? I absolutely do. So I think this is very different than previous markets we've been in. And I think we have a polarization of valuation going on right now. And I think it's really important for our investors to understand that. And I ended with this sentence. I said, the aroma of euphoria is strong, my friends. So proceed with caution. And that's what I would tell our listeners is proceed with caution. Just like Dan talked about when you sit down at the poker table, understand the risks, understand what you are um, kind of putting on the line and make your decisions accordingly. Um, we ask it this time if you would rate the podcast and if you'd leave, co- leave comments, we'd really appreciate it. And of course, we will be back next week with more of our thoughts, thoughts on, on money. money. Excellent. Oh, you say thoughts on money at the end? The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice.
This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.